Thank you for joining us for episode 20 of The Meaning of Health. This week we have a chat with Doug McFarlane, a PhD candidate at the School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Western Australia. Doug tells a fascinating story about how he ended up doing research into the psychology behind the use of products that are often promoted as having health or therapeutic benefits, however, without any empirical evidence to support those claims. We discuss why believing misinformation about these products happens and how it can be harmful in some circumstances. We also touch on misinformation during the current COVID-19 pandemic and what we can all do to try and ensure that we don't contribute to the spread of false information. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, welcome to another episode of The Meaning of Health. I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're here today with Doug McFarlane from UWA. How are you, Doug? Great. G'day. Yeah, thank you. Very good. So, Doug, do you just want to give us a bit of background about uh, your position at the moment and, and what you're doing? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a PhD candidate uh, based at the University of Western Australia in the School of Psychological Sciences. Um, I'm doing, I'm in the final year of my PhD, which is on basically um, the psychology of health misinformation in particular. Um, and, and looking at how we can design interventions to better protect consumers from fraudulent health claims and, and online misleading misinformation. Excellent. Yeah, and obviously that's something that's quite topical at the moment given the, the COVID-19 pandemic, which we'll go, to in, go into in a bit more detail later on in our discussion. And now I noticed that you also have been a visiting scholar in a department of zoology at Cambridge University. Right, yeah, it seems like a bit of a strange connection, but my background is actually in um, conservation. So I did an undergraduate in science and, and ecology, um, really interested in wildlife conservation. And a huge problem um, in wildlife conservation is the illegal wildlife trade. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the big drivers of, of that trade is this belief in um, certain animal uh, body parts have these miraculous health benefits, so rhino horn or, or tiger bone um, bear bile another big one. These are big industries um, in different parts of the world. And so I was interested in how, how, does, how can psychology, how can the science of, of communication and what um, help us to inform better ways of addressing those problems rather than just the, you know, the enforcement approach, the banning or the international trade regulations, et cetera, which is the predominant approach. I wanted to come at it from psychology and that's what kind of where my interest in psychology grew and that's, that's led me to my current PhD. Okay. Yeah. So, did you did you have that idea originally when you started doing the, your your science degree within zoology? Was it like this is something that you always were interested in, or did it kind of develop over time? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I like to think of myself as um, quite a slow learner, actually. <laughs> so, I think I started with always an interest in in wildlife and conservation and um, environmental issues in general. Um, did a science degree was a bit frustrated that a lot of the problems were human-based, right? So then I actually picked up an arts degree. I did a combined arts degree looking at um, comparative development, which is politics and um, a bunch of other different reasons. So trying to solve the issue, environmental issues from that perspective, and then got frustrated there and thought, no, what I really need to do is law. So I actually went and did a law master's. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was while I was working in government um, in, in a fisheries natural resource management um, kind of position um, I, I did a, a part-time master's and, and I actually got frustrated with, with my law master's because I found that a lot of the law, a lot of these international laws aren't based on any science. So they're very prescriptive. They say this is how, how the world should look like, this is how it should, things should happen. But often there's a lot of perverse outcomes from really poorly um, worded laws and, and not based on science. So I got much more interested in psychology and how that can inform much better approaches and, and, and so I, I, I'm kind of just self-taught, self-interested in psychology, started writing to psychology professors saying, look, I've got these ideas of how we can better do interventions rather than just the law um, and, and then I got introduced to my current supervisors who are at UWA who, who thought some of the ideas had a bit of merit and we, we've kind of just grown from there. So, yeah, it's been a long process, very slow over about <laughs> 10 years actually to get here. So. So, so what was your role? You said you did some work in government. What was your role there? Uh, I actually got a job in um, Victoria in, uh, for Fisheries Victoria, as, as it was known then, 
um, started in fisheries management uh, and policy and then moved out into the field actually and I was a, I was a fisheries officer so I worked in compliance. Mm-hmm. But that actually means lots of different things. So we enforced, um, you know, a, the local um, state commercial fisheries as well as, you know, legal poaching of abalone and rock lobster and recreational fishing, etc. So there's a bunch of different things. We also do a lot of education and outreach and have impact on um, policy and, and management as well. And, and, and throughout that, I, I then I saw lots of opportunities to better communicate with people rather than just fighting them or just catching them out. Is there a better way that we could use some of this psychology and inform them with different interventions? And um, that was quite a difficult message to get through. And, 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 I, and I eventually concluded that I think I'm going to have to do this research and prove that this can work right to get anyone on board. So, mm-hmm. so again, I, that was the conclusion. I, after seven years of working as a, as a fisheries officer, I was like, okay, great, I'm going to go do a PhD and see if I can prove it, whether or not this stuff actually works, right? Mm-hmm. It's huge promises and whether or not does it actually lead to the behaviour change um, mm. that it says it will. And yeah, and I think that's really interesting. So, uh, Doug, you obviously don't know me. My background is also in psychology. So, like, I did my undergrad in psychology and I sort of a little, little bit about it. And one of the biggest things uh, for me was that behaviour change is very, very difficult to do. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see if you can actually demonstrate that because there's I don't think there's many things that actually have shown behaviour change in humans. It's 100%. <laughs> it, um, <laughs> It's, it's, it's um, one of the hardest things to do is to change people's behaviour. And, and I think one of the reasons for that is because a lot of our intuitive kind of thoughts about what changes behaviour, say like prescriptive laws, finding people um, being really harsh and penalising people, that often doesn't work or it has these really perverse outcomes that makes, potentially makes the situation worse or makes some other thing that we didn't even see worse. So, so it is very true. It's very hard to do and very easy to get wrong <laughs> and, and but we stick to a lot of these notions of what we what we're, we're so sure will be right but it turns out not right and that and that's one of the things that i love about science so much we can actually test our theories and show when and when they don't work and um we'll get to a bit of my science but i'm actually very optimistic that if done correctly you know can be very powerful and we can show some real impacts with some very small changes actually mm. so that's a pretty good segue into a paper that you wrote a couple of years ago, I think, and you had published a couple of years ago about reducing demand for ineffective health remedies and overcoming the illusion of causality. Do you want to talk the listeners through what happened in that study? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so again, this is, goes back to this idea of what are the underlying psychological drivers as to why people believe in health remedies that we've already proven don't work. Um, so, so to, or they're untested or, or potentially they're harmful. But let's just go back to um, a really common one, which is um, multivitamins, right? So there have been lots of big clinical trials showing that multivitamins don't provide any benefit, um, just general health benefit, right? So, so all these tests and actually what they find is the people who were given the multivitamin versus the people who were given the sugar pill right? So, so they have two different groups. That's how a clinical trial works. Um, everyone thinks they're getting in the multivitamin, but the group who got the multivitamin in, in a few studies have actually shown that they had higher risk of mortality and higher side effects, right? So it's the opposite to what you might, might find. And almost never do we find an actual benefit, which is really confronting, but actually there's lots of good science on that. Yet we know that a huge portion of people in, especially in the West, in Australia, the UK, US, um, are taking multivitamins and different herbal supplements to the tune of a few, I don't want to quote, but a lot, lots of money. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so, so then I was interested in, well, what is the reason for that and, and can we test um, different intervention messages to see if we can reduce the demand, right, if we can communicate this science effectively rather than just saying to people, hey, the science says it doesn't work, stop doing it and see because that's an ineffective strategy, right? So, so that particular paper is looking at one phenomenon which I think is very key to a lot of what's driving these kinds of beliefs and that's um, basically when you take, um, say, let's have an example, say you get a cold right? and a really common response to getting a cold is to take vitamin C supplements, mm-hmm. right? But we know that, it, you know, three to, three to five days after getting a cold, most people just recover naturally from taking a cold. 
say you get a cold and on day two or three you're feeling so terrible that you go take your vitamin C tablet and then you get better on day four and five. You can then associate the fact that you got better with taking the vitamin C. The more often you do that, the stronger the, this illusion of causality, this illusion that taking the vitamin C is what made you get better. But we know from clinical trials that actually taking vitamin C after you've already got a cold doesn't have this benefit, right? So if you did nothing, you would have recovered all the same, except it's this really strong illusion. So what I was interested in that paper was like, how do we communicate why we know that taking vitamin C doesn't work? In this case, in that paper, I use multivitamins. Why do we know that multivitamins don't provide a health benefit? Can we communicate that in a way that's really simple, that empowers people to understand the science rather than just jamming the, the science down their throat and telling them that they're wrong and making them feel defensive about it, which is the opposite to, I think, what mm -hmm. psychology tells us we should be doing. Um, so that's a bit of a complicated backstory, but the, the way that we did that intervention was to say, look, let's break down what a clinical trial is doing into the most um, really easily way of thinking about clinical results. So instead of saying, you know, the raw numbers of who got better and who didn't get better and whatever, we, we break it into a contingency table, which is a four-way table. So we say the number of people who took uh, multivitamins and felt a benefit the number of people who took multivitamins um, and didn't feel a benefit, the number of people who took a sugar pill and felt a benefit, and the number of people who took a sugar pill and didn't feel a benefit. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, and, and we just broke those numbers down to say, look, three out of four people who took the multivitamins said, experienced the benefit. Great. You know, most people think when they're taking it, they're, they're feeling a health benefit. But also, compared to the sugar pill, three out of four people also thought that they were experiencing benefit as well. And then so what we were doing there is to say this means that clearly it, the multivitamin wasn't providing a benefit. It was a placebo effect and something else. And, the, and then, and this is also cru crucial, we said the reason why multivitamins don't provide a benefit is because most Western diets provide ample vitamins that, that, that supplements actually don't provide anything over and above that. So we, gave, we didn't just say, look, this is how we know that it doesn't work, but also there's a, there's a plausible scientific explanation to why you know, these supplements are providing this additional benefit. And that was basically the intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and then so to demonstrate that this is having an impact rather than just, say, asking people before and after, you know, has this changed your belief about multivitamins? We tried to take it another, a step further, right? And this is one of the things I think with a lot of studies in psychology where it's been very difficult to get actual behavioral measures of, of behavior change. So we thought, well, the measure that's of most interest is consumer demand. So what if we measure the amount that people are willing to pay for multivitamins? So we actually said, um, we gave people $5 and we said, you're going to participate in an auction and you're going to bid on a real multivitamin product. Um, and it's a, but it's a special auction in that you're not bidding against um, any, anyone else. We're not, we don't want it to be too confusing. You're bidding against the random number. So you should only pay what you think the multivitamin is worth, um, right? So if you bid too much, um, you, you, you potentially pay too much and, and you, you, you might win. The, you have a better chance of winning, but you might pay too much for the product. If you bid too little, you've got a lower chance of winning and you might um, miss out on getting a product, but you keep the $5. So what we're trying to elicit is actual people's consumer preferences, right? So we did that with real products and real money. And we found that the intervention significantly reduced the amount that people were willing to pay compared to, and this is important, the control condition was just saying that there's no evidence that multivitamins provide any benefit, right? So just telling people that, we were able to reduce the amount that they're willing to pay by an additional 23%, which is, which is quite a big difference when, when you scale that up, quite a big difference in any psychological study. So that was a very nice result. And that's basically the gist of that paper. So, so in the control group, people were told that they didn't work. Well, and in so, the, yeah, so yeah. sorry, in the control group, they were told that there was no evidence that they, that they provided a benefit or not, basically. Okay, and in, and in the intervention group, you gave them reasons as to why they didn't provide a benefit, is that right? Exactly. We, we gave them this, this, this actual simplified um, contingency table. So we gave them the actual table, which is like in one cell it's three, the next cell it's one, three, and then one, and it, and it just shows that you get the same benefit from taking a sugar pill as you would Mm -hmm. Same amount of people say report experiencing it. Yeah. Okay. And were these people uh, people who previously took multivitamins or were they just like a random sample of people? Yeah, exactly. Great point. So before they went into the auction, we asked them a bunch of um, what, co-variables, basically a survey to say how strongly do you believe in 
alternative health remedies and multivitamin supplements. And so that was an 18-item questionnaire where you just uh, agreed or disagreed with statements about, yes, I think multivitamins are super effective. Yes, dietary supplements are super effective. Or no, I don't believe in any of that stuff at all. And you get a score at the end. And we found that that score um, made this perfect line. So the stronger you believed in your um, preference for you know, alternative remedies and supplements, the, the more people paid, right? It was this really perfect correlation. And that's how... And then that just went into our model. So basically what we're looking at was we controlled for their pre-existing attitudes and, and showed how we could influence over and above their pre-existing attitudes. So people, yeah. so people who, who believed in them more were more likely to pay more and that was great because it showed that we were measuring something interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. And um, yeah, it sort of reminds me of a, a theory called the availability heuristic. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, um, where people draw an association between two of two events or an explanation for something happening because things happened around the same time and it's the easiest explanation for them. So this other, this one thing must have caused the outcome when really it was just by chance that those things happened at the same time, which is what you're saying with the, the vitamins and the colds. Definitely, definitely. So there's, there's lots of different words for very similar phenomena and often the thing that pops into our brain the explanation that seems most intuitive that pops into our brain, maybe because it's most familiar, because we hear it often or because it happened around the time we got better or, or it started to rain after we did a dance or whatever it is, that's, mm. that's being a bit silly. But um, it's those causal associations which are very powerful and, and, you, and we have to find a way to explain to people why, you know, they are just illusions in some circumstances, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, that, I mean, that's kind of underpins a lot of the work that happens in our school, which is population health, which is based primarily on epidemiology and it's really about people getting mixed up between causation and association and you know these sort of things so yeah it's really interesting to hear that coming through in the psychology literature as well i think i think it obviously we use multivitamins as a simple example because lots of people were using them and it was just the proof of concept but you're exactly right there are so many i mean it's basically it's a key part of science proving what actually caused something rather than, you know, the host of other possible explanations which could have explained the, the outcome that you're linking to that thing. And, and, and one of the problems is once we have an explanation, um, we're very reluctant or, or we just don't even consider that there could be alternative explanations. And that's mm-hmm. what science does. It says, no, we need to control for all these other possible things which are just equally likely and often more likely than the thing that you've concluded caused whatever. Yeah. I think in, in psychology it is, it is a big thing because uh, just – reminiscing back on some of the things I've learned, half of the things have now been proven to be wrong. And I think that's a, that's a huge thing in psychology is like, we all believe one thing and then suddenly there is this alternate explanation. Um, But I do have a question for you, Doug. I have a friend who very much loves his multivitamins and alternate medicines. And uh, he will probably be listening to this one and he knows uh, that I've been meaning to talk to someone about this. What advice would you give him about taking multivitamins? It's very, very difficult <laughs> when, I, I mean, okay, so what we I am know, putting you on the spot here. <laughs> no, uh, I know. And, there's, and, and, and so there are so many different things that go into people's beliefs. Um, and and talking to someone with those beliefs is much much more difficult than actually writing papers and showing you know how we can how their behaviours are influenced by certain things. So yeah, trust me, I've I've talked to I had an argument with a lady from who actually worked for the, the World Bank, believe it or not, who was an anti-vaxxer, mm-hmm. and that discussion was incredibly infuriating because they can be some of the most impassioned and and least informed people you'll ever encounter. So. I was trying to use all my science to, to communicate and it was very, very difficult. So I don't have any <laughs> easy answers and advice. All I can do is walk through a few of the things that I would do. Um, I suppose um, one thing that someone can do who is a big believer, say, in multivitamins is, or, or, say, taking echinacea or vitamin C after they get sick, one thing to uncouple the illusion of causality is to say, look, next time you get sick, just try and not take anything and see what happens or just take less of what you take. So the less you take, you'll start to uncouple this illusion that it's the thing that you're doing is making you better. A, a, a big part of what's driving people's belief in alternative remedies in medicine is this, um, it's the feeling that we, that we like to be in control. We, we want to be, we want to know how our bodies work and we want these simple 
um, remedies and we want to feel like, yeah, I'm doing the best thing I can for my body. So we, we do something, some action to make it better. We don't trust that actually our body you know, produces natural um, painkillers and does all these kinds of, has this amazing immune system and we don't trust that. So we think some, some natural remedy does that. So if you can start to uncouple it by just asking people to take less of those things and just experiment, just do that, just do that one little thing and see if you still feel good. What we know with people who, who are really into, especially dietary supplements is they usually, they tend to be the healthiest people in our population to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because they're so concerned about their health, they're usually eating really well, they're using exercising, and they're the people who, even if there was a benefit from, from dietary supplements, they're the people who least need it. Right? They, have, they usually have everything. So, so again, I think if he could just take a step back and, and rely on those things less, eventually he would be less and less convinced and hopefully he wouldn't be convincing himself and hopefully he would, he would realise that it was marketing slang that he was essentially falling for. Right? And I, I think your paper kind of provides like a stepping stone to making that behaviour change. Definitely, definitely. And it's, I think the, the key takeaway for me, if I was to sum it up, is it's not about saying someone's wrong or the science is right and just throwing it at someone. It's to say, this is, this is if we break down science, this is why we know it doesn't work. Because whenever we test it, we can never find a benefit. And that's really disappointing. We've thrown lots of money at this problem. Mm-hmm. And this gives you an explanation as to why you felt better and maybe you could save yourself a bit of money and potentially... Um, some possible harms because there are studies linking some of these things to, to side effects. You know? and, and, and once people realise that, I think that starts to, to get them thinking, oh, there's actually, there is um, potential damage I could be doing by taking these supplements, which are, which are usually quite poorly regulated, unfortunately. Mm. I guess that's a nice uh, transition into the, the, the next paper I wanted to chat to you about, Doug, uh, which was l- looking at protecting consumers from fraudulent health claims. And you've Try to organise the evidence uh, in a in an easy way to follow to look at what drives this psychologically, and then the interventions, and then some of the barriers to the interventions, and then also how you can overcome those barriers. Do you want to talk um, a bit more about that? Yeah, happy to. So that is basically as part of my PhD. That would be my literature review section, except that it was such a huge question, is which was asking what were the many underlying psychological drivers which which make people fall for um, what I've deemed fraudulent health claims, right, that, that are claims that have been proven wrong or they're untested or, you know, there's potentially a harm in taking whatever that remedy and we, we've demonstrated that. So, um, so what are the psychological underpinnings of that? And that's what this review is about. Mm-hmm. As, you, as you've mentioned, there's quite a lot of different steps to it, but basically it's a taxonomy a taxonomy which we've broken down into five major drivers. So, um, um, for instance, one major driver is a thing that I've been talking about lots and we'll get to um, is visceral influence. And that's basically um, when certain cues in the environment or, or things that trigger an emotional response from us. Say say we're in pain, right? That's going to trigger this emotional drive to get out of pain. Or, or say we've got a terminal illness, that's going to trigger this emotional kind of focus on we're going to be much more receptive to, to any kind of promise of a cure. And we're going to be so focused on getting out of pain or getting out of hospital that, that, that we're going to potentially see cures at the expense of ignoring a lot of other things. And there's lots of cognitive psychology and um, explaining why this happens and and what the problems with it is, but basically when we're emotional, we're using up a lot of our cognitive resources to focus on a particular thing that we need at the expense of you know warning signs that we're being taken advantage of, for example. So it actually potentially reduces our cognitive flexibility, it reduces our um, attentional focus, and and in some cases um, it could actually reduce our IQ. Right, there's been some interesting studies showing that people who are emotional actually aren't just they're not themselves. Right, they're not even thinking as um, how they should be. And it's a big part of um, just kind of online fraud and scams in general. They get they promise people big rewards, um, and and you get on this kind of emotional train where you're just doing little. You know, you just step by step getting deeper and deeper into this this fraud. Before you know, you just kind of feel out of control. And, and that's a big part of, you know, it's probably the first step in, in when you become vulnerable. So at the moment when everyone's worried about um, their jobs or they're worried about contracting this, this horrible virus, 
when uh, the focus of our attention um, is going to limit what we see and, and how susceptible we are to, to kind of fraudulent claims. And that's re a really unfortunate byproduct of just our basic, basic cognitive system. Right, so that's one driver. And the often, um, the, the common intervention, which is the next stage, uh, to kind of protect people from visceral influence is to say, look, when you're feeling emotional or when something sounds too good to be true, ask someone who's not under the same influence or go ask advice from an independent, um, you know, um, doctor or, you know, because they won't be under the same influence. And that's but basically just raising awareness. There are all these scams out there. It's just make sure you pay more attention. But often because we've got less ability to pay attention, that kind of advice is not that effective, right? Mm -hmm. Because for the same reason we're under this um, visceral influence. So, so then the next stage in, in this taxonomy is to say, well, what are the barriers that prevent us from being able to take on board that advice and why do we still fall for these scams? Um, and, and as I've talked about a little bit, it's this illusion of attention, which is um, you would have heard about this very famous psychological experiment where uh, you watch a basketball field and people are passing around a basketball and then, it, and then you're asked to count how many times the basketball was, was passed along and I've done this before. And you say, well, I think there was seven or eight, you know, times it was passed or whatever. And then they said, did you notice anything strange in the video? So, well, no, not really. I was counting the balls. You watch the video again and they say, look out for the gorilla. There's a man who walks straight through the middle of the, of the, of the sequence. He's standing in a gorilla suit and he looks directly at you and he's right in the middle of the screen and then he walks off screen. You didn't notice it at all. And it's um, this illusion that we have that we think that what we see is everything that's going on in an environment, but actually we've shown that you can be looking directly at something, but if your attention is focused elsewhere, you miss it. So it's a great analogy for what happens when you're focused on obtaining some goal, a cure, financial gain or whatever, that you're going to miss so much else of what's going on. Um, and so that's a barrier. So just raising awareness about potential scams out there is not sufficient enough. And, and then so the next stage in our thing is what are some more psychologically informed treatments um, that, you know, journalists, health organisations, um, science communicators, et cetera, can do to help people to avoid, you know, falling into these traps, right? And so um, the two things that we suggest in, in this example is to say, well, what we need to do is provide preemptive cues at crucial times when people are about to make a decision. So when you're feeling really terrible and all you can think about is getting better, you go to the pharmacist and you buy vitamin C and multivitamins, you buy everything you can think of that's going to get you out of that pain. That's a time where you need very clear warnings to say the clinical evidence clearly shows that this is no better than a placebo because that is, that is the best clinical evidence. Um, and that's where you need those preemptive kind of important cues. And that's one kind of treatment. Right, to say. The other one would be instead of overloading people by detailing, you know, complex scams and, oh, there's a new scam that's come out claiming to be the tax office and there's a new scam that's come out doing this other thing and, and, and saying you need to avoid this, this using this strategy and that using this strategy and it gets all just a bit too much. What we need to do is simplify things and give people really simple rules of thumb to say um, because they're not going to have the cognitive capacity to navigate a really complex world, especially when they're under this influence, um, what, some simple rules might be something like, look, you shouldn't be buying health remedies uh, from the people who have diagnosed you with an illness, right? That's a basic rule of thumb because the person who's diagnosing you, if they're an alternative remedy expert, has an incentive, a financial incentive to overstate um, or basically to invent a diagnosis, to overstate um, the benefits of the remedy and to under-report, you know, the potential side effects of that remedy. And that's really problematic and that's why when you go and see a GP, they're not the ones who sell you whatever the treatment is because there's a conflict of interest there. Um, and, but for some reason, those rules don't seem to apply to a lot of alternative um, health modalities, right? So, so I think that would be a really simple rule of thumb that we can give to people. So if you just follow this rule, you'll be, you know, so many scams will be averted, right? And, um, so, yeah, so that's basically the taxonomy. The, the other four major drivers, Then we then go through common interventions, potential barriers to why those interventions aren't effective and a bunch of different treatments that, you can, that we can give to people that kind of enable them to get up through these psychological barriers, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Did you have an example of a barrier and a treatment that you could share with us? Yeah, so... Um, 
in our previous discussion, um, we talked about the, the driver would be nescient, so the lack of information that a certain remedy is not effective and that we don't know it's effective. The intervention would be to provide information, just say, look, science says it doesn't work. The barrier to that is the illusion of causality, which is what we just talked about, and that's, that also goes back to things like um, my personal experiences. Hey, look, I get a cold and I take vitamin C and I get better, so uh, you know, science doesn't work for me or whatever. So that's an illusion of causality. So that would be the barrier. Um, the treatment would be the thing that I described before. That's giving people this simplified contingency table to explain why it doesn't work. And then also the explanation based on actual science to say, well, the reason is because we get it from our diets. But um, some other treatments might be, um, as I said before, to get encourage people to in, reduce the frequency, reduce how often they're taking the supposed cure and just see whether or not they still get better, right, and start to uncouple this illusion of causality. Um, and the other thing um, is... Well, I can go into... Well, there's so many different things <laughs> I can go into. Mm. Um, does that, I can give you other examples or... Is that a, no, that, I think that's, that covers it pretty well. Um, there have been a couple of attempts in the popular media to, to address and implement some of this stuff that you've just outlined. Um, I know the checkout on the ABC is a show that has debunked a lot of pseudoscience claims uh, you know, during, during the episodes that they've done. I don't know if they're actually producing that show anymore. but I don't think so. Uh, I think it might have yeah. ended now. Yeah, but yeah. They, they had some really great ones about, I think it was, there was a company that, that manufactured this high-speed blender and they were saying that we, we blend your food into sm much smaller particles so you get even more nutrients than you normally would and you know unlock the potential of your of your food and all this sort of oh, stuff. Uh, and they did the same thing with supplements. They analysed all the evidence around multivitamins and that sort of stuff and said exactly what you're saying, Doug. Yeah, that, I, I do remember that show. That was, that was fantastic. I only saw a few episodes. It was some mm. of the Chaser guys, I think. It was the Chaser, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that stuff is excellent. What's also great about that is it's entertaining, right? So, mm. so more people are more likely to watch it, which is, which is great. Yeah, they did a fantastic job. And I think um, just showing um, people, I, I suppose, like I said, when you're in a situation where you, where, you, where you need a cure or whatever, those kinds of, of explanations are breaking down nutrients by having a higher rotation of blender or whatever, it seems quite plausible. We just we don't we don't have mm. the ability to question whether or not that's true or not. Um, but actually, when someone explains how silly it is from externally and explains some of the science behind it, um, that's really quite powerful. But we but what mm. we have to ex understand is that I've met some really intelligent people who have tried to tell me the same. <laughs> have tried to tell me the same thing, but it's because they haven't actually looked at any real science behind that. No, yeah. actually, we get all the same nutrients from just cooking food or whatever. Yeah, and another really good example that when I was growing up. Uh, is is my mum's a nurse, a registered nurse, and for a time there, we were given echinacea pills if we came down with cold-like symptoms. And right. obviously, there's no evidence base that echinacea works for that um, type of illness or any other. And, and that's coming from someone who worked in the healthcare sector, so it, it is quite pervasive. Um, Very much so. Yeah, some of the some of the, some, some some you can't even some well. Yeah, definitely health professionals will, you know, have some of these side beliefs as well. And they are just very commonly accepted. And I say it's part of it is because um, we, 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 we're more likely to try something when we think there's no harms in doing it. So, mm. so Donald Trump's a classic. He's just going through the step-by-step, -step, falling for certain things. What's the harm in just trying it? Let's just do this thing. It, you know, it might work. And that's basically a lot of the psychology behind a lot of alternative remedies. Um, and that's something we could get into, which is basically um, there's, a, there's a really interesting thing called um, affect, right, which is way that we make decisions and we make judgments based on feelings rather than actual r rational thought. Um, and, and so there's this thing called the affect heuristic, which is basically says when uh, something is, there's, there's basically a negative correlation between risks and benefits. Right. So when something is perceived as high in benefit, it's also perceived then as low, low in risk, um, even though those two things might be completely unrelated. Right? If something is really low in risk, it's perceived as high in benefit, and we can show that by manipulating one and then asking people, you know, you say this has got really low risk, how effective do you think it is? It's antibiotics, for pesticides, for whatever it is. There's this really interesting science there. So, so basically because people think that things that are natural are harmless, 
Um, they also think they're more effective. They're also more likely to try them and then that goes back into the illusion of causality, this feedback loop of it's effective. Um, yeah, which is, which is interesting, I think, because, you know, what's, there's so many natural things that can kill us as well, like mm. um, strychnine, uh, hemlock, cyanide, arsenic. <laughs> Look, um, COVID-19 is, is a naturally occurring virus, right? So mm. just because it's natural does not mean it's safe, but it's, a, but it's something that we've become accustomed to mostly because it's marketed very, very successfully. And, and we love the idea of the nature of being safe and perfect and, and, and man ruining things. So it's very persuasive ideology. Unfortunately, often it's just used in, in very manipulative ways and, and very misleading ways. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I was going to uh, ask you about some of the psychological reasons around why people are susceptible to misinformation and why the people that spread it. I mean, we know that obviously some people have a financial interest in spreading it because they profit from it. But I've, I've received all sorts of nonsense uh, from pe- from sources that later came back and apologised and said, actually, that was a scam that I sent you through this stuff about COVID-19. Um, and I'll share a couple of the examples later on. Um, what What is in it for people to, to do stuff like that? So, so there's probably two different sets of people we need to think about. So there's the people who create that misinformation in the first place. And I think those people who are on a spectrum, I think there are people who um, are very, at the one end, are very manipulative. There's clearly a financial goal for them. Um, and that's really important to communicate to people. But that financial goal might be, you know, one I saw he was at a video, was some natural therapy you could just do at home. So you couldn't really see what his financial gain was. But actually, if you go to his website, you could see that he, it was because he was selling books, right? He was selling all these really quack books about things like subliminal messaging and whatever. So he was a full-time fraudster. So very manipulative, used a lot of very manipulative techniques to make that video quite compelling. On the other end, you've got people who are just so convinced that this natural remedy or this approach or this thing that they've been doing 30 years is the reason why they're healthy, that they just want to share it with other people. They want to create this content. And, and, this, and, they, and they, I, I suspect they feel so justified and so sure of themselves that they're willing to then lie about who they are, say that they're a doctor on the front line or from a hospital, to share that misinformation. So I, I suspect there's a spectrum of different reasons why people are doing it. It's not always manipulative, but often the best and the most potent ones are manipulative. They're making money from just you clicking on their website, like they're mm-hmm. advertising hits or, or whatever. So there's, there's those people. And then the, the other part of your question is why do people, like people in my own family, for instance, or probably your friends and family, why are they passing on that information? Why are they sharing this, this information? And I think there's lots of different reasons. Again, um, you know, if we go back to the psychology of motivated reasoning and confirmation bias and we like information that confirms our previously existing you know, worldviews, right? If there's, if I'm someone who's really big into natural remedies and alternative health remedies, I'm much more likely to believe um, some information that confirms that belief, and I'm less likely to seek out, you know, opposing information that disconfirms that belief, um, or I'm much more critical when someone presents something to me, some evidence to the opposite, right? So that's what, that's a motivated reasoning explanation. Um, oh, I've lost my train of thought. That's okay. <laughs> Yeah, so we were talk, kind of talking about confirmation bias. Um. Right, right. So, yeah, so going back to why people are sharing it. So, that, so, there's, so there's things that you share because it confirms what you existing know and you want to share it with your family. I think uh, especially at this time we talked a bit about, you know, these emotional influences when we're all kind of stressed. But, you know, there's, there's actually quite a lot of anxiety going around because the media, you know, is very confronting. What's happening in the world is very confronting. So I think at the moment we're all, we've all got less capacity to really evaluate what we're reading. And we're kind of acting on impulse and we're more impulsive. That's another aspect of visceral influence that makes us a bit more impulsive. So we're seeing something, we're reading a headline, we're reading the first few lines and we think, wow, this is incredible. And we, and we often feel um, it's more, um, it's stronger than just saying, look, I can't see the harm in this thing. So, you know, I need to share it with my family just in case there's a benefit, just in case I've found the cure and they can do this thing. It's really simple. It's more than that. You actually feel compelled to do it because you can't see the harm. You think, I would be a bad person almost if I don't share this with my friends and family because what if this does work? You know, everyone needs to just gargle with self. Everyone needs to, needs to do this thing. Mm. Um, and, and so I think the reason is often because we're coming from a well-meaning place 
and we can't see the negative things. We, we potentially don't have the capacity of that time. We're not going through and fact-checking where that information's from. We're taking at face value that the person is someone on the front line who works in a hospital or is a virologist or whatever. And we're not going on and cross-checking whether or not, you know, does that person even exist? Is that person you know, on the fringe of actual science and everyone else is saying the exact opposite or the science is saying the exact opposite. Um, we're not doing that homework because we're just so busy just getting on top of all the information. We just want to pass it on and make sure our friends and family are safe. So I don't think it comes necessarily from a bad place. Um, and my advice to, to, to you and to everyone else is to, is to stop and think about what the potential harms are of sharing information, even if it seems like it's harmless, even if it seems like it's great common sense advice, even if it, all it is is asking people to not eat ice cream, right, which is one that I've seen. Um, it, it seems like common sense, good advice can't hurt. The problem is when you share really simple, intuitive cures that people can do to protect themselves from this horrible virus, um, it actually... Um, makes them more complacent. It, it makes people think that there is an easy way to avoid or there is an easy way to deal with the problem if you get it. You just do this thing. I've been, you know, I've been a physician for 40 years and my family's still alive. Here's my proof why it works. <laughs> right? so, um, and actually that's really dangerous because what we need people to do more than anything right now is to take the things that we know are important really, really seriously and that's social distancing. That's not exposing yourself to friends and family more than you need to. That's washing your hands with soap and alcohol wash. That's potentially wearing a mask and PPE if you're in, in, a, med in, a, in a medical situation. But so, so sharing those harmless remedies are actually having this, this flow-on effect of actually being quite harmful and explaining that to people, um, you know, very simply, very gently, I think is an important aspect of, of trying to get on top of, of why that's happening. Yeah. I, I think a, a big example that's happened recently, uh, particularly with the, the COVID-19, is I think in Iran there was some misinformation about drinking methanol to cure COVID and it killed mm. a large number of people and thousands were poisoned and that was misinformation um, because, you know, methanol does help to kill the virus but only when you're washing your hands with it, uh, not when you drink yeah. it. <laughs> And, yeah, and I think following on from that, I mean, Donald Trump came out and started suggesting that chloroquine, which has been used as a treatment for malaria, could be effective because they're trialling it to see if it's effective. And someone went out and a couple, older couple went out and took it, I think, in Arizona, and the, one of them passed away from it, you know, from a reaction to it. Um, yeah. Wow, yeah, so, th so they're, they're both examples and there's countless others. I've heard drinking bleach, you know, there's a bunch of others that are really insanely harmful things or potentially in case of the chloroquine, just promising hope when we don't really have the science to back it up and there's reasons to believe that it may or may not work yet. Um, great, let's test it, but, but, you know, yeah, it's so problematic when a president <laughs> is just jumping on the hope of something because that sends a, a message to people that can get people, you know, harmed. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there are, there is much more obvious harms in those cases. But because mm. when you're trying to sell something to someone, even if it's just an idea, you're not actually making any money off of it. You just want them to escape this thing. These mm. really intuitive, narrative, you know, pseudoscientific, science-y-sounding explanations can be very, very convincing when you're stressed, mm. um, especially when you're stressed. They can be convincing any time. And I, I know because I've, I've scammed uh, I've gone to schools and, and to universities and I've scammed people using some of these explanations that I've explained to them how silly they were afterwards. But because um, you just give someone a plausible explanation, they think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. This power band is giving me better balance and making me you know, smarter or whatever. <laughs> yeah. but, you can, but because you can, I can just make up anything and if, it's, and if I use some science-y-sounding science words or complicated stuff you're not going to understand, it sounds plausible and that's one of the problems with alcohol. There's some truth in the alcohol, as you say, kills the virus but drinking it ethanol certainly isn't gonna you know you know it's it's a it's a fundamentally flawed understanding and oversimplified understanding of our biology and it's going to get people killed but it sounds correct because a little bit of alcohol in the right context is good so therefore this might be an actual thing so let's just try it you know yeah i mean a couple of other popular ones that seem to be circulating are that if you, if you are able to sunbathe, the sun's UV rays will kill the virus and vitamin D is good for you, so that will boost your immune system. And then another one is ensure that your mouth and throat are always wet and never dry because you can wash the virus down into your gastric acids and they'll kill it. And 
obviously, you know, some of these are, are floating around purporting to be from advice to the hospital workers and stuff like that from the hospital. And clearly it's just spurious. Exactly. I think I've seen that one five or six different times. I've seen it from the NHS. I've seen it from, you know, claiming to be from the NHS, claiming to be from a virologist, claiming to be from an ex-respiratory professional. Um, And it's the same kind of, you know, intuitively sounding advice. It sounds great, but actually it's really not the right advice to be giving anyone and often it's just so flawed. But because Mm. it sounds right, it's very convincing. And that's why that particular bit of misinformation is just being reinterpreted and reshared around and around and around. So when we come across something like this, because I I feel like at this point in time, particularly with what's happening in our current climate, like we're all going to come across something that seems plausible but is a bit flawed. How can we tell what's real and what's not real? Yeah, the million-dollar question. (laughs) So so I can give a few tips to... Um, things that you should be doing, right? If you get any information um, that you feel, if you feel the impulse to share something, there's a signal that you should be, okay, let's, I should fact check this right before I share it with anyone. So the first thing is if you're getting a private message, that's the first warning sign that it's probably not legit. Right? If you didn't see it from, from a reputable and independent and balanced news organisation and not all the news organisations out there are, are any of those things, um, for example, I'm just going to go out and say Fox News has done incredible amount of harm with their, you know, especially their initial stance on on the seriousness of downplaying the seriousness of this outbreak. Um, so if you're getting it in a private message, then that's a that's a, a warning sign that that you need to double check it. If if the person's claiming to be something, but you can't actually, there's no name attached, there's no organisation attached, and you can't actually verify who that person is, that's another warning sign. Um, so so. Moving that aside, if what they've said is very plausible and you think, well, look, I, I don't know who, where it's coming from or whatever, but it sounds really intuitive, you know, maybe I'll just share it. Before you share it, what you need to do is fact-check each individual claim if you're going to take the step of actually sharing it and passing that on. And, and there's a couple of really simple ways that we can do that, right? We can, there's some really fantastic websites and resources. The WHO has got a myth busting website and they've myth busted lots of these things very very simply and they provide evidence as to why a certain you know gargling salt water is not going to help you um with corona right to protect you <laughs> um uh so they're really good and there's there's a few other websites i think factcheck.org the um the afp which is a, a organization for journalists they've got a fact-checking website up just for coronavirus um, there's the International Fact-Checking Network. They've, they've also got a whole database on debunking coronavirus misinformation. I think um, about a week ago they had already debunked about 800 different claims and misinformation, not just health claims, a bunch of other misinformation as well, political, etc. cetera. Um, they're great. They just state what the actual evidence is, whether or not it's a true myth or not, and, and, and how they know and they'll link to an article. And that's a great, that's a great place to start. Um, another really good thing to do, which is really useful, if you get a, a, a something and you want to know whether it's true, is just type in some of the words from the exact message you've got that you're seeing in front of you and just say myth or debunked or false or whatever. Just Google that and, and often someone will, will have already debunked it for you, some reputable organisation. So there's some really simple things that we can do to protect ourselves from believing mm-hmm. that information. And, and it only takes, you know, it takes me about a minute to debunk any individual claim, right? So... Um, we're just not giving that time at the moment. So encouraging people to slow down, do a bit of homework. Um, there's, there's a lot of other things we need to be doing in terms of increasing people's literacy in terms of what news organisations are reputable, what it means to be a reputable, balanced organisation. Um, so the ABC, I, I would hold them up right now as being world-leading, actually. They're fantastic in the way that they're debunking misinformation, that they're providing, you know, frank, open, honest advice about, you know, different things. And so they're a great um, resource. And the reason why they're a great resource is because they're mandated to be balanced. They can't just provide a one-sided perspective and there's no financial interest for them to sensationalise any news. They're just providing. And so they're all the things... Um, that you have to worry about when you're going to the more commercial news sources. And, and, and I think um, that's the kind of information that's a lot harder to teach, but, but really we need to get a handle on as a society, how do we communicate when it's important to really fo- you know, focus on the right news sources? Because those news sources can literally you know, be a big difference between how your community is going to fare in a, in a time like this. Mm. And I, I can 
highly recommend the Corona cast that Norman Swan features on and that comes out daily. And that's one of the sources where they do debunk a lot of those myths you're talking about there, Doug. Yeah, Norman Swan, he, he's, um, he's been fantastic. He's been around for a while debunking health misinformation on different topics and, and he's a fantastic communicator. Yeah, couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. So we're probably coming towards the end, I'd say, of our, of our chat. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to discuss, Doug or Courtney? Courtney? Uh, I, well, I guess the, the one question that comes to mind is uh, what are you going to do next? You're almost at the end of your PhD. What's, what's going on? Right. So I, I actually wrap, my, wrap up my PhD in October um, and then I'm actually in the process of applying to, of all places, Facebook has actually just put out a huge funding a call so they said we're putting money on the line to say you know people we need some expertise in debunking misinformation they've obviously got a huge problem with how misinformation spreads so so just looking for ways to fund postgraduate research and continue to do the same thing actually um mm-hmm. uh, yeah it's it's interesting in that i think people are feeling locked into their houses and maybe a bit bored i, I don't think i've ever been busier or more stressed <laughs> with the <laughs> amount of stuff that's coming through yeah. i mean it's really unfortunate but it but it but it's it's demonstrating that you know this kind of research has a really important applied aspect and and so i'm just trying to find ways to get the research out there and continue to do it and what i'm really interested in is you know testing this stuff and making sure that we you know we are actually protecting consumers and they're behaving in accordance with the science not just not just making them feel good or making me feel good about publishing papers or whatever. I really want to make sure that people are protected from some of the heart, the dark sides of, of this modern misinformation world that we live in. Mm. Well, this seems like a pretty good note to finish on. Uh, Doug, th- thanks very much for your time today. My pleasure, Craig and Courtney. Thanks Thank so much you. for talking to me. Yeah, it's been, yeah, it's been really great. good. Yeah, excellent. Anytime. And uh, we'll, we'll include a couple of links in the show notes as to where people can find your research and some of the things you've done. Great. Perfect. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. That was our chat with Doug McFarlane. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is our 20th episode. We're grateful to all of you who listen and support us and love hearing any feedback that you have. You can contact us via email at meaningofhealth@outlook.com and on Twitter at healthmeanswhat. Thank you for listening and we look forward to bringing you our next episode soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Thank you.